From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. With corporations amassing more power and with more violence introduced into U.S. politics, we present a rebroadcast of our interview with Gerald Horn about his latest book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow, and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. If you look at the January 6, 2021, so-called insurrection, one of the points that should leap out is that a disproportionate number of the so-called insurrectionists actually hailed from the state of Texas. And as used to be said in the 19th century, if we're not able to corral Texas, Texas will corral us. And the shocking testimony from U.S. election workers fearing for their lives. We need your help. We need your help with protection. We need your help with increased awareness of the threats and intimidation. If elections are truly critical infrastructure, we must protect them and those that administer them. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital for August 19th, 2022. I'm Esther Averam. Well, there are three legal developments directly impacting investigations into business and government dealings of former President Trump. On Thursday, a federal judge in Florida said he is likely to order the release of the affidavit used to grant a search warrant of Donald Trump's home, which is inside his Mar-a-Lago resort in Palm Beach, Florida. But the judge, Bruce Reinhardt, gave the DOJ a week to propose redactions to the document to shield sensitive data. According to a copy of the search warrant and a property receipt reviewed by reporters, the August 8th raid by the FBI yielded 11 sets of documents, some of which were labeled secret and top secret. One of Trump's lawyers told reporters that 12 boxes were taken from a basement storage area. Though the announced raid was executed only after Trump repeatedly refused to return these illegally taken sensitive documents, pundits and politicians on the right continue to rail against the raid, defend Trump, and attack their historical allies at the FBI, with some even calling to defund the FBI. All the uproar gives more credence to Trump's 2016 boast that he could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue in Manhattan and not lose any voters. Quote, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? It's like incredible, end quote, he said. Millions in donations have poured into Trump's political action committee since he began announcing misinformation about the raid. Also on Thursday, Alan Weisselberg, the Trump organization's longtime chief financial officer, pled guilty to conspiring with the company to commit numerous crimes related to unreported income. As part of the plea deal, the 75-year-old confidant of Trump will serve five months in prison, pay $2 million in taxes, penalties, and interest, and testify in the upcoming trial against the Trump organization, but not against Trump as an individual. Weisselberg's guilty plea and the decision about the Mar-a-Lago affidavit happened one day after Trump's former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, testified for six hours to a grand jury in Georgia as part of a criminal investigation into Trump's effort to overturn Georgia's results in the 2020 presidential election. In the feverish weeks after the election leading up to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, Giuliani made numerous false public statements, including accusations against Fulton County election workers that resulted in death threats and harassment, particularly against two black women workers, Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shea Moss, who testified before the January 6th committee in June. Georgia is also one of seven states where Giuliani and other Trump campaign officials helped create a slate of fake electors who submitted fraudulent documents to the National Archives, stating that Trump had won in their states rather than President Biden. One possible culmination of the scheme was to have former Vice President Mike Pence accept these fake documents of these fake electors on January 6th rather than Biden's electors. If Georgia provided an example of the willingness of Trump supporters to use deception, threats, or violence to achieve election outcomes, other harrowing examples were given 
even by Republican election officials testifying recently before the House Oversight and Reform Committee. This is former city clerk for Rochester Hills, Michigan, Tina Barton, speaking about how she was targeted after the 2020 election. Why the details of my story are unique. Over 1,000 incidents of hostile and harassing contact have been reported to the DOJ. Mis and dis and malinformation is dangerous, and it's fueling these threats. Barton left her job after more than 30 years. Evidence revealed so far in these investigations into alleged mishandling of government documents or alleged efforts to overturn elections is not lost on those caught up in the U.S. system of mass incarceration for far less serious offenses. And this evidence is not lost on supporters of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who the U.S. is trying to extradite and charge under the U.S. Espionage Act for publishing evidence of U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. There were several actions for Assange in D.C. this week, including a rally outside the Department of Justice. Thomas O'Rourke has more. Time to coincide with the current tour by Pink Floyd founder and politically engaged rock musician Roger Waters. Residents of Washington may see a series of satirical political billboards on trucks circulating throughout the National Mall, Capitol Hill, and downtown areas of D.C. The brainchild of comedian and Pacifica broadcaster Randy Credico, the mobile billboards point out the urgency of defending WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and press freedoms against U.S. efforts to persecute Assange for exposing U.S. war crimes at a rally in the shadow of Merrick Garland's Justice Department Wednesday, Speaker Chip Gibbons of Defending Rights and Dissent summarized the vital reasons for defending the long-persecuted publisher and journalist. Every single one of these three-letter agencies have played a role in the war on Julian Assange and the war on WikiLeaks. And why are they so out to get Julian? Because Julian exposed the realities of U.S. empire he exposed what it means to be an empire. He exposed not just the bombings, the war crimes, the torture, but also the shady backroom deals and economic exploitation of our State Department. And because he did that, there's been a 12-year vendetta against Julian, against WikiLeaks, and against anybody who aided and assisted them. After Waters' brief remarks and departure, Gray Zone founder Max Blumenthal linked the rapid departure of the mainstream press from the rally to a critique of corporate media's support for the American imperialist state. This is the single most important case about press freedom right. in our lifetime. If Julian Assange goes, the First Amendment goes, Amen. and he is not even an American citizen. You know what the problem is with the mainstream press? They actually think that Julian Assange is not only guilty of some high crime because they are stenographers for power. They're humiliated by him because he was one of the only people doing the job they were supposed to do, which yeah. is to hold power to account. Reporting from the Department of Justice for On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. Also, on August 15th, a lawsuit was filed against the Central Intelligence Agency, former CIA Director Mike Pompeo, and a Spanish and a Spanish security firm for their role in alleged illegal seizures and searches of the phones and laptops of lawyers and journalists who visited Julian Assange during his exile in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. And speaking of crimes of those three-letter agencies... August 9th marked the fourth anniversary of the massacre of 40 children on a school bus in Yemen. They were killed when a bomb made by the U.S. firm Lockheed Martin was dropped on the bus by Saudi Arabia in its ongoing war, which has led to the greatest humanitarian crisis on earth in Yemen. The Al-Mayadeen Media Network interviewed recently the father of the only child on that bus who survived, Yunus Al-Khatabri who is 15 years old and is still being treated for shrapnel in his face after being bedridden for two years. 
Yemen's health minister said at the time of the bombing that of the 51 people who died in the airstrike, 40 were children, and that of the 79 people wounded, 56 were children. Code Pink and other organizations held a vigil to mark this war crime. Yemeni-born Professor Shireen Al-Aldimi of Michigan State detailed U.S. involvement in the atrocity and in the ongoing war. There's U.S. complicity all throughout the war. So the Saudis were the ones who dropped this bomb, yes. But the U.S. helped them with the logistics that it took to drop those bombs. The mid-air refueling that were still ongoing during this time. The targeting, so choosing the target, was always done through U.S. intelligence. The training of the pilots was done by the U.S. Air Force. And, of course, the weapons that were sold were U.S. weapons. So the Saudis really only are part of this process, but they couldn't have done what they did in this particular event and in all bombings in Yemen without extensive U.S. support. Here we are seven years later, and we're still fighting for an end to U.S. complicity in this war in the form of yet another war powers. So currently there is legislation that hopefully will be introduced soon for a vote. And it's legislation that urges the president to end U.S. complicity in the war currently through uh, some kind of intelligence sharing or uh, training or logistics. The anniversary of the school bus bombing is being marked as those in the global south are becoming more outspoken about the double standards laid bare in comparing the support given to suffering Ukrainians and similar or much greater suffering in places such as Yemen and Palestine where it was just confirmed that Israel was responsible for killing five Palestinian children, four of them cousins, as they sat next to their grandfather's grave in the northern Gaza Strip earlier this month. World Health Organization Director General Tedros Adnan Ghebreyesus said this week that millions starving in the Tigray region of Ethiopia is a crisis far greater than that in Ukraine, but that these people are not getting attention compared to Ukraine because of, quote, the color of the skin of the people into gray, end quote. Back in the United States, black residents of Lexington, Mississippi, just filed a federal lawsuit against the municipality, its police department and current and former police officials, including an ex-chief fired for boasting about shooting a black man 119 times. The lawsuit filed by the civil rights group Julian in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Mississippi says that black residents are terrorized by a pattern of excessive force, intimidation, and false arrests that have made many residents afraid to leave their homes. One resident, Tasha Walden, said she had to relocate out of state to keep the former police chief, Sam Dobbins, from harassing her and repeatedly arresting her son. Residents are calling for the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate the town and told reporters that though fired, the former police chief, Dobbins, is still riding around in taxpayer-funded patrol cars with on-duty police officers. Here in the district on Thursday, the D.C. Child Justice Coalition held an action, Ain't I Woman, mobilizing for women's liberation on the steps of the Wilson Building, which is like D.C.'s state capital, to advocate for reproductive justice in light of the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court. President of the coalition, Chioma Oru, read a letter that was then delivered to the offices of Mayor Muriel Bowser and D.C. council members, asking them to advocate for the repeal of restrictions on the use of Medicaid funding to pay for abortions and to expand the idea of reproductive justice beyond abortion to include, for example, decreasing household and food insecurity for families, banning forced sterilization of disabled women, and passing a guaranteed income. I spoke to Oru at the end of the rally. I mean, these are scary times where um, our bodies are being 
policed, <laughs> right? Um, in, in more stringent ways than they've already been policed. They have now given states, and DC is considered a state when it comes to enforceability of these kinds of things, um, to block our um, independent decisions to choose to not have a child um, and for all the reasons that people choose to not. And the choice to have children should we decide to exercise um, those rights as well. And finally, in culture and media, D.C. area educators for social justice is holding their inaugural social justice curriculum fair on Saturday, August 20th, 9 a.m. to noon at the Martin Luther King Library in D.C. The event is sponsored by Teaching for Change, a national organization. Teaching for Change is one group empowering educators to offer students the facts of history and, and current events in the face of of the Republican-led war on so-called critical race theory, which is a framework for understanding systemic racism in the United States. Related, on Thursday, a U.S. district judge in Florida struck down the so-called Stop Woke Act created by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. The act, sometimes called the White Discomfort Law, outlaws classroom discussions or corporate training that makes students or workers feel uneasy about their race. Judge Mark Walker issued a preliminary injunction against portions of the Stop Woke Act, which means Stop the Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act, saying that it violates First Amendment and the 14th Amendment. Walker wrote in his opinion, quote, If Florida truly believes we believe in a post-racial society, then let it make its case, but it cannot win the argument by muzzling its opponents, end quote. And those are our headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. Ms. Barton, you are now recognized. Good afternoon, Chairwoman Maloney, Ranking Member Comer, and members of the committee. Thank you for convening this roundtable. I recently concluded a 32-year career in public service where I served at the local, county, and federal levels. The last 16-plus years of my career were focused on election administration. On election night, November 2020, My team made an error when saving an absentee file that contained results for seven of our 32 precincts. The error was found and quickly corrected. That following Friday, a press conference was held by a national Republican political figure at the Oakland County Republican Party headquarters. The county party that had nominated me as their candidate for Oakland County Clerk Register of Deeds. President Trump and I both lost in our county. But that press conference changed my life forever. No one contacted me to ask what had happened or to seek the truth. Instead, this statement was made. Just last night in Oakland County, we found 2,000 ballots that had been given to Democrats that were Republican ballots due to clerical error. And this took place in Rochester Hills. You could hear the gasp of everyone in the room, and I was stunned. I responded with the following statement shared by video. My name is Tina Barton. As a clerk, my job is to run the elections fairly and securely. All ballots are and have been accounted for. There were no missing ballots. The accusation that 2,000 were found is categorically false. As a Republican, I am disturbed that this is intentionally being mischaracterized to undermine the election process. This was an isolated mistake 
that was quickly rectified once realized. Every voter should have complete confidence in our voting system. Every vote that was cast was counted accurately, and there is a paper ballot backup. And I stood by our reported results. Four days after that press conference, I received my first death threat. It was laced with obscenities, threats to my life and my family members' lives, and used sexually charged language. Pardon me. Why the details of my story are unique. Over 1,000 incidents of hostile and harassing contact have been reported to the DOJ. This and dis and malinformation is dangerous, and it's fueling these threats. We need your help. We need your help with protection. We need your help with increased awareness of the threats and intimidation. We need grant funding that is specifically designated to assist officials. If elections are truly critical infrastructure, we must protect them and those that administer them. Thank you. For the record, I am Jim Condos, Vermont's 38th Secretary of State and Chief Election Official. I'm a second-generation American, and I'm very proud of my Greek heritage. Since taking office, my top priority has been accessibility, security, accuracy, and the integrity of Vermont's elections. I am proud that that Vermont is widely considered one of the most voter-friendly states in the country. I am equally proud of the high marks Vermont has received from MIT's Election Performance Index, better known as the EPI, a highly reputable, reputable, data-driven analysis of state election administration. Vermont has scored first in the nation on the EPI in both the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections. In Vermont, we utilize the gold standard of election integrity, a voter-marked paper ballot. Since the 2006 uh, time period, we have done com- uh, completed post-general election audits that have provided assurances of, or that our elections have integrity. These fi- facts did not stop a man named Harry Ansbach from calling our office and leaving numerous threatening voicemails for my election team following the 2020 election. Those voicemails, colored with lewd and profane language, repeatedly told my staff that One, our time was up. We would be hanged or executed by firing squad. Our days were numbered. We would, and I quote, get popped and to put a gun in our mouth and pull the trigger. These threats and others were coupled with the same conspiracy theories about the integrity of our elections that our former president and his supporters continue to push to this very day. Lies so insidious they are driving people to make violent threats against sworn election officials just for doing their jobs. The voicemails were so concerning that one of my staff members suffered symptoms of PTSD and he had to receive extensive counseling while taking a leave of absence. We have had to forego budget issues to install new security features at our office building. And we worked with our legislature and law enforcement to strengthen Vermont's ability to investigate and prosecute threats like these. Unfortunately, this story is not unique to Vermont. This experience is shared by my colleagues around the country, some of whom have added added 24-7 security. As states, we can only do so much to respond. We need Congress's help to ensure we have the support, the tools necessary to keep our committed election workers safe, and we need to have dedicated financial resources available to be able to administer their secure, transparent, and fair elections. I always end by saying no election official should have to fear for their lives while focused on their duties and service to our democracy. Our democratic process cannot survive undefended attacks on the people we rely to vote. Thank you. That was James Condos, Secretary of State of Vermont, and before that, Tina Barton, former city clerk for Rochester Hills, Michigan testifying about election misinformation and threats to election workers before the House Oversight and Reform Committee on August 11, 2022. This is On the Ground. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, 11-year-old Mia Cerillo testified in Congress about surviving murder of 19 of her classmates at Robb Elementary School in Ovalde, Texas. She said of the gunman, quote, he shot my friend that was next to me, and I thought he was going to come back to the room, so I grabbed blood and put it all over me, end quote. Before Mia, Dr. Roy Guerrero, a pediatrician who attended Rob Elementary, rushed to treat shooting victims that day and described corpses of grade schoolers rendered irrecognizable by rounds from a military-style weapon loaded with expanding bullets. Children whose bodies have been pulverized by bullets fired at them, decapitated, whose flesh had been ripped apart, that the only clue at their identities was a blood-splattered cartoon clothes still clinging to them. Cleaning for life and finding none. The fact that Mia and Dr. Guerrero are part of the indigenous population of this hemisphere was not lost on me as I read Gerald Horn's new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. In it, he reminds us that in Texas, when it came to the genocide of Native Americans by European settlers, it was, quote, permissible to kill all males 12 years and older by the 1850s, and where the vaunted Texas Rangers were little more than death squads of a type that came to characterize U.S. foreign policy by the mid-20th century, end quote. And with that brief insight, we're excited for Gerald Horn to join us again to discuss more about the latest in his series of books on history, which of course always tell us so much about what's happening today. He is the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. So why don't I start with the recent horrific murders of the children in Uvalde and how that relates to your research and what you wrote about in this newest book. I'm afraid to say that this latest tragedy in Ovalde, Texas, may have been shocking, but it was utterly predictable. Utterly predictable insofar as it grows out of a violent Texas culture that stretches back at least to Texas's secession from Mexico in 1836, not least because Mexico, under a president of African descent, speaking of Vicente Guerrero, had moved to abolish slavery. Those freebooters, so-called Anglos, who had invaded Texas decades before, including Sam Houston and Stephen F. Austin and others who rather arrogantly gave their names to what became major U.S. cities, were not disposed to go along with abolition of slavery. And so like their counterparts and peers on the eastern seaboard of North America in 1776, who seceded from the British Empire because they thought that the British Empire was moving towards abolition of slavery, Texas emulated that maneuver and set up an independent country, the Republic of Texas, which was in existence from 1836 to 1845. During that period, Texas distinguished itself as a major enslaver of Africans. It's no accident that today, Texas has the largest black population than any other state in the Union. It's no accident as well that Texas developed a violent culture based upon the promiscuous deployment of weapons because it faced on its so-called soil, a fearsome militant brigade of Native American groupings, probably the most fearsome and militant in all of North America. I'm speaking, of course, of the Comanches in the first instance. I'm speaking of the Caddo, C-A-D-D-O, who had an interlocking directorate with people of African descent. I'm speaking of the Kiowa, K-I-O-W-A, many of whom wound up migrating south of the border into Mexico, where their descendants continued to reside. And so what happens 
And this is important for the understanding of the subtitle, The Roots of U.S. Fascism, is that many of the so-called liberals, particularly in Washington, believe it or not, their preferred option, their preferred remedy for Native Americans was to have them migrate into so-called Bantustans, to use the South African apartheid term, reservations. Indeed, as you probably know, there was a massive Bantustan established on the northern border of Texas, so-called Indian Territory, now known as Oklahoma. However, in Texas, that particular option was seen as the option of the wimp. Their preferred option was liquidation of the Native American population. And in that regard, what you need to realize is that liquidation of the Native American population, that is to say genocide, was not just coming from the top down, that is to say from the leaders or from the uh, leaders of the Texas Rangers, which you mentioned, it was also coming from the bottom up because you had a substantial migration into Texas from cutthroats and debtors from Dixie at large, such as Mississippi, uh, from Europe. So in order to understand fascism as it is emerging, in North America, you have to understand that it is important, yes, to look at the leaders, such as Agent Orange himself, Donald J. Trump, but we would be misguided and misleading our constituency if we were to assume that there was not a bottom-up element uh, to this emergent fascism, just as if you look at January 6, 2021, you not only have to look at the CEOs who participated in that so-called insurrection, you have to look at the shopkeepers and the working class elements and the police officers and the soldiers as well. And this bespeaks the nature of settler colonialism. Uh, from the time that the English first established an attempted settlement, I should say, in what they called North Carolina in the 1580s, Settler colonialism was a product of class collaboration. That is to say, it was not just the 1%, it was the 99%. Which brings me to a further point, which is that slogan, the 1% and the 99%, it has a certain usefulness. But to the extent that it elides the point of class collaboration, to the extent that it elides the point that a goodly number of the 99% or collaborating with the 1% because they think they're going to become part of the 1%. And so therefore, we'd be better off perhaps speaking of the one-third, the Trumpistas, the neo-fascists, versus the two-thirds, that is to say, the rest of us. And I think that that's one of the critical lessons that emerges from this book that I've just published on Texas and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. But what happened in 1845 is that independent Texas could not stand up to abolitionist pressure. Abolitionist pressure in North America, abolitionist pressure from London, and particularly abolitionist pressure from revolutionary Haiti, which was in the vanguard of abolition because it recognized that as long as slavery obtained anywhere in this hemisphere, Haiti's sovereign existence would be jeopardized and indeed that fortunately, so far, a word that I think has disappeared from our vocabulary, speaking of, quote, being re-enslaved, unquote, that Haiti ran the risk of their populace being re-enslaved. As long as you had these mass enslavers in places like Galveston, because the idea was, why go all the way across the Atlantic to Angola to get black people when a few hundred miles from uh, mm. the shores of the United States, uh, you could get thousands of black people to bring them to the sugar plantations of Southeast Texas. When you were describing that, I was thinking about our previous discussions we've had around Juneteenth, for example, and this history of people coming from the Eastern seaboard, coming, I guess, from Georgia, Tennessee, maybe even as far away as Virginia, to go to Texas 
because it looked like you know slavery could be abolished in the run up to the civil war i suppose and the people would actually just go to texas because and and try to take all their enslaved people with them to texas where they could continue this process and this you know hideous institution of slavery and that kind of coincides with the i think one of your early sections of the book is called I think it's called Where the Old South Meets the Wild West. And this this idea of you have all these people coming in with the idea of continuing slavery. You have indigenous people there putting up a fight to not have their land taken over by these, in these settlers. You have enslaved people who know that they could be free if they weren't in this particular situation. And just the violence that was perpetuated just to keep that system in place. It's just to kind of keep what was a Wild West situation glued together. Well, keep in mind as well that independent Texas, the Texas Republic, sovereign Texas, saw itself as a competitor to the United States of America. That is to say, it thought that it could compete with the United States of America in terms of denuding Mexico. Indeed, uh, Texas wanted to swallow California before the United States of America swallowed California. And when the United States of America forced the indigenous population of the southeast quadrant of North America, speaking of the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Seminoles, the Creeks, and other indigenous populations to embark on the Trail of Tears, walking hundreds of miles from, say, Georgia to Oklahoma, which was then Indian Territory, the idea was that you put these disgruntled Native Americans on the northern border of Texas, independent Texas, and that would help to keep Texas in line. Now, part of what I'm saying, alert listeners may have gathered thus far, is a decided rebuke to what I consider to be the liberal fantasies about the creation of the United States of America that focuses upon these vaunted founding fathers, the likes of which we have not seen before or since, who veritably walked on water, who developed this celebrated Bill of Rights, which, by the way, included the Second Amendment, which guaranteed that settlers would have weapons whereby they could defeat the indigenous population and keep the enslaved Africans in line. Certainly, the enslaved Africans had no right to bear arms because if they did, I guarantee you slavery would have ended before 1865. And those who are familiar with a generally discredited cinematic genre known as the Western knows that one of the stock villains from Westerns is a settler who sells arms to Native Americans, helping them to fight back. And so This liberal fantasy, I think, handicaps us when it comes time to confront this emergent fascism because there's this rampant idea that it can't happen here, as the 44th U.S. president used to assure us at fraught moments, that's not who we are with regard to, say, the shootings at Sandy Hook or the other disgraces that have pockmarked the U.S. landscape. And so, therefore, it's, it's a kind of ideological disarmament that mm-hmm. these historians have forced on the rest of us, helping to induce a certain kind of lulling, a certain kind of unrealistic view of what can happen on these shores. And this is happening at the same time as the January 6th hearings are telling us that there has been and will probably continue to be uh, continued plotting to forestall the possibility of the right wing ever losing another presidential election. That's why they're gearing up to control the office of secretary of state in so many different states, because they want to control the office that controls the counting of votes. And so you should see this book on Texas, among other things, as an antidote to the poison of these liberal fantasies, which have misled and misguided generations of U.S. nationals and citizens, and is determined to do so indefinitely in the future, unless we turn this ship of state around. 
Gerald, hold that thought. We're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, about his new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Well, Gerald, also during recent years, we've had all these important news stories that we've discussed come out of Texas. I'm thinking about the fight for voting rights, how the state has implemented these draconian new uh, voting restrictions, the fight against women's access to reproductive rights, uh, very restrictive abortion laws. And the Texas governor recently signed laws to make, uh, make it easier for people to get guns and to carry guns out in the open in Texas. And, and he also said to a journalist recently that he wants to challenge the federal law that requires that all children, including children of the undocumented, must be educated. And I couldn't help think about that when I learned about this horrific massacre of children largely from the Latinx community. I'm also thinking about how there was this freeze of the power grid structure and so many people were without power. Some people froze to death and we found out that Texas alone has its own power grid, which would have something to do with its status as being, you know, the Lone Star State and having this kind of the old South meeting the wild West again and just this freewheeling capitalism. What's remarkable about Texas is that as early as Texas's admission to the United States in 1845, you had liberals, particularly from New England, who thought that this was the beginning of the end of whatever Republican small r experiment was to take place in the United States and North America. And this included uh, for example, the former U.S. president, John Quincy Adams, the son of a president, the second president, John Adams, then a member of the U.S. Congress from Massachusetts, uh, he was amongst those who felt that we either had to corral Texas or Texas would corral us. And apparently what's happening, given the litany that you just recited, as historians like to say, it's no accident that the catastrophes of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were prosecuted by a president with roots in Texas, speaking of George W. Bush, that the catastrophe of the genocidal war in Southeast Asia in the 1960s was prosecuted by a Texan, President Lyndon Baines Johnson. And folks need to also realize that Texas is the most or the second most populous state in the United States of America, second only to California which means that given the fact that the House of Representatives is based on population, probably the vanguard, the plurality of the reactionary members of Congress happen to hail from the Lone Star State. And likewise, if you look at the uh, January 6, 2021, so-called insurrection, one of the points that should leap out is that a disproportionate number of the so-called insurrectionists actually hailed from the state of Texas, even though they had further to travel than, say, people in Virginia, for example. And that gives right. you an idea of their verb, of their animal spirits, if you like, and of their determination to turn back the clock of time, because that is their history. And as used to be said in the 19th century, if we're not able to corral Texas, Texas will corral us. And you mentioned a moment or two ago how there was this influx into Texas 
from points due east, not only before the Civil War, but particularly during the Civil War. Because recall that Texas had seceded from Mexico in 1836 on the question of slavery, and then it tried to secede from the United States of America in 1861. And in fact, you could consider it to be the vanguard nation in terms of secession from the United States in 1861. Uh, Texas contributed disproportionately to the men in gray who fought to maintain slavery. Texas was the Confederate state least damaged by the U.S. Civil War, which means that 1861 to 1865 and thereafter, as Georgia was seeking to recover economically and South Carolina and other states were seeking to recover economically, the slave owners would flee into Texas. And I'm afraid to say, oftentimes bringing uh, Africans uh, in tow. And this is even after slavery is officially abolished in 1865, which brings me to Juneteenth, the recently proclaimed holiday. Now, what's remarkable, and uh, I say this with no sense of satisfaction, Probably the most up-to-date analysis and history of Juneteenth is to be found in these pages. And what I find is that I have reporters who call me even now for comments on Juneteenth, but they want me to tell the traditional story about how General Granger shows up in Galveston, the major slave port, in June 19, 1865, and tells the enslaved that you're free. Supposedly, they didn't know that they were free. But as any uh, high school student should be able to tell you, the Emancipation Proclamation, January 1st, 1863, could not apply to jurisdictions that were not under the rule of the Lincoln government. And that certainly included rebellious Texas. Africans certainly knew about the Emancipation Proclamation, but they were being forced to work for free at gunpoint. So what happens also uh, during this particular period in the 1860s is that France opportunistically had sought to take over Mexico during that period and then work out a deal with the Texas enslavers, whereby either A, uh, slavery could continue and the rebellion of the enslavers could continue uh, post-1865, or B, the enslavers could move with their so-called property into Mexico to continue slavery in Mexico. But what happens is there is a mass revolt uh, in Mexico against this prospect. Many of your listeners are probably familiar with Cinco de Mayo, which is predominantly a Mexican-American holiday, which marks a victory over the French occupiers. But you cannot begin to understand how and why this diabolical plot of continuing enslavement in Mexico would ensue without understanding what happens, which is that there was a revolt by Mexicans against this prospect. And of course, they were assisted by the black population of Mexico, which is concentrated heavily on the Caribbean coast around Veracruz, for example. And as well, you have black soldiers in blue, that is to say uh, armed Negro soldiers fighting for the U.S. government who are putting enormous pressure uh, on the enslavers. And what that does is that leads finally to the ouster and execution of the French puppet leader Maximilian on June 19th, 1867, which is the Juneteenth that in a sense we should be celebrating because that brought us closer to the day when slavery would be effectively abolished, much more so than June 19th, 1865, with all due respect to the federal holiday and the story that underpins that federal holiday. But I should also make a point or two about what follows 1867, which is the attempted reconstruction, which, as you know, is drowned in blood by terrorists and the Ku Klux Klan. And it leads to one of the most profound and disgraceful eras by the black leadership in the history of the United States, which is obviously saying something. And that is 
that at the same time that black people were being terrorized by the Klan in East Texas, per the wishes of the black leadership, you had black men in blue who were routing the indigenous population in West Texas, engaging in ethnic cleansing, uh, clearing them away from the land so that the land could then be occupied uh, by invading uh, European settlers. Uh, this was a major blunder, to put it mildly, because it's followed swiftly by a very unique form of persecution in Texas. But, but before you get to that, so this is what is known as the Buffalo Soldiers, right? Correct. A very unique form of persecution in Texas. Uh, this is another perverse and cruel way that Texas was in the vanguard, which is that when black people were lynched in Texas, keep in mind that one of the secrets even to this day of the political economy of Texas is the presence of oil, which is one of the reasons why there is almost literal dancing in the streets of Houston at the prospect of Russian oil being boycotted by the European Union because they figure they can snatch mm -hmm. those markets. But when black men in particular, and they were the overwhelming victims of lynching, I'm afraid to say, were being lynched, oftentimes they'd be boiled in oil. Not only would they be boiled in oil and with matches and logs aflame being tossed in, in, up, upon them, but in this pre-radio, pre-television era, it was also a kind of entertainment for the settlers who would oftentimes take photographs that are on postcards that you can still find in museums. Oftentimes, the remaining carcass of the victims would be carved up and then pickled. I assume that those digits and other aspects of the carcass can still be found on shelves and kitchens in Texas, I'm afraid to say. And you should also realize that part of the story that I tell in this book also tells a story, as already suggested, about the fate of the Native Americans as Indian territory morphs into the state of Oklahoma by 1907. But what happens is that on Native American soil, there is oftentimes oil to be found, which then leads to a further routing of them. But as well, some of the indigenous populations, such as the Cherokee, in their attempt to assimilate and become like European settlers, had decided to enslave Africans. And what happens is that unlike their counterparts in Virginia or South Carolina, et cetera, they were forced to really carry through on the promise of 40 acres and a mule. And so you had developing a rather affluent class of Negroes, particularly in Tulsa, and I'm sure you can realize where this story is going. That is mm -hmm. to say, up until 1921, when you had the settlers invade the Greenwood section of Tulsa on spurious grounds, needless to say, rout the black population, seize their wealth, send them packing, and of course, uh, claim their wealth. And that is, in essence, the story of the massacre in Tulsa in 1921, uh, which the centenary was being marked in 2021. And going forward in succeeding decades, because of the oil wealth in Texas, you had these notorious Texas oil men, such as H.L. Hunt, the Murchison family, the Cullen family, the leading lights of both Dallas and Houston, who by some measures were the richest people in the world, believe it or not, but also were major funders of very of every right-wing cuckoo scheme you could think of. Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin, who bears an eerie resemblance to current Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, was oftentimes referred to as the third senator from Texas because he was funded so handsomely by these Texas oil men one of the recipients of lush political donations. So this is the rather inglorious history of Texas. This is the history that we're all seeking to overcome. And once again, I must remind the audience that this book is consciously pitched as an antidote to the liberal fantasies that have led 
this nation to the brink of a unique kind of fascism. And if we're not careful, we'll go over the edge, we'll go over the precipice into catastrophe and disaster. Well, we definitely want to pick up on some of those points. Such a fascinating, rich history. And I know everyone is listening intently, just like I am, to Gerald Horn talk about his new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. We're going to take a brief break, and we'll be right back. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm speaking with Professor Gerald Horn about his new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. One other issue I thought about in terms of Texas and this horrific murder of these young children and their teachers in Ovalde is the fact that it's very close to the border. And over the past year, we've had the issue of Haitian migrants being treated so badly by not only the U.S. lawmakers, but by the U.S. corporate media in terms of them being considered as invaders, these swarms of migrants who, you know, may have COVID and just horrible. And so many of them just being deported en masse back to Haiti, where they had not lived in many years in some cases. And then, of course, the indigenous people of this hemisphere, as I mentioned before, getting treatment very different from the refugees from Ukraine that are given kind of a carte blanche and a red carpet to establish refugee status in this country. And, you know, it just reminds me of this history that you're laying out around European settlers, and especially in Texas, with a a certain violence and with the kinds of atrocities that you mentioned, making it clear that they saw this as a land for white people. And as we recently discussed this whole great replacement theory, and you heard commentators like Tucker Carlson referring to white people as the legacy Americans, you know, it's just very obvious that there's a certain amount of lack of memory, lack of history, lack of just consciousness about really the history of this country. So I I wanted to just kind of touch on relating this history that you're talking about to this country's uh, funding and arming the far right in Ukraine. As I mentioned, they have committed to letting 100,000 people from Ukraine come here, not saying that all Ukrainians are Nazis or neo-Nazis or or far right. So I hope that's not too much (laughs) as a question, but I just wanted to begin to wind up on that. Well, first of all, we must insist upon the connection, the inevitable connection between domestic policy and foreign policy, that should we be surprised that in Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, and sites too numerous to mention, that U.S. imperialism makes the decision that disputes should be settled through the barrel of a gun, and that that particular ethos then returns to these shores with velocity, not only in Uvalde, but also in Buffalo and and other sites that we're all too familiar with. Likewise, we should realize that the mass murder that U.S. forces have committed in those aforementioned nations, not to mention those they are now supporting of an ultra-right hue in Central and Eastern Europe, that that leads to a coarsening of the psyche of too many people in the United States of America, 
a coarsening that then manifests itself in the ability of teenagers to grab assault weapons rather easily and ammunition and commit mayhem in a way that makes a supermarket or an elementary school seem like it's a kind of weird video game. And likewise, should we really be surprised, given the odious history of white supremacy in this country, that the United States basically bows and indeed encourages the roughhousing and manhandling of Haitians on the Texas-Mexico border within recent memory, while not only does Mr. Biden offer to admit 100,000 Ukrainians onto these shores, but the New York Times columnist Brett Stevens says that everyone should, who comes from Ukraine should be given a green card, allowing uh, various kinds of benefits. I, I have not seen a column where he says that Haitians who arrive on these shores should be given a, a green card, for example. However, I do not want to leave on a note of gloom and doom, as I stress in the book, at least in Texas, and I would dare say in a good deal of the United States, repression breeds resistance. That is to say, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why Texas has had such a bloody history is because the resistance to depredations has been so fierce by the indigenous population, as noted by the Comanches in particular, by the enslaved African population, who in many ways pioneered with regard to devising means to revolt, and part of the comprehension of Texas rests upon the southern border because it's the only slave state in the United States of America that has an abolitionist nation, speaking of Mexico, hugging its southern border, stretching for 800 miles. And what helps to generate so much militarism in Texas is Mexico standing up to Texas, standing up to the United States of America, refusing to return enslaved property to Texas, thousands upon thousands of enslaved Africans flee into Mexico. Mexico refuses to return them. And we see as we speak in Los Angeles, the glimmerings and the outlines of that kind of alliance that I noted in the 19th century emerging with the so-called summit of the Americas where President Lopez Obrador has refused to attend because of the refusal to extend an invitation to Cuba, to Venezuela, to Nicaragua, uh, followed by other countries such as Bolivia, Honduras, uh, given our optimism about impending elections in Colombia and Brazil, we see that there is an emerging block, oftentimes to be led by Mexico in league with Cuba. And that is reason and room for optimism that just as we were able to defeat the enslavers in the 19th century, we can defeat their descendants in 2022 and beyond. Well, on that note, we'll have to leave it there. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston, and author of this latest book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. And I su suggest everyone <laughs> uh, make sure they uh, check this book out. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Ivera, and on our website at onthegroundshow.org. We are a totally grassroots, listener-supported program. And if you have not taken the time to support us, we would definitely appreciate your support. We need your support to keep going. Go to patreon.com. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show to subscribe. And you can also go to the website, which is on the ground show dot org. And there's a link there 
that you can give on PayPal, you can send a check or however way you want to give that way. But the best way for me to make sure I stay in touch with you, send the, the content every week is on patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show. And it's only for as little as $3 a month or $33 for the whole year. In addition to communicating with us on the website, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and at Patreon.com, as I just mentioned, all of which have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground, or also link to every show on my Instagram page. The music we played this hour included Home Universe by Chick Corea, Chant by Robert Glasper, What Rough Beast by the Brent Sugar Orchestra, and that's the late, great Greg Tate's group. And our theme music for the show is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.